It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Kathy, the Stephen Benson murder trial got underway at about 10.30 this morning with jury selection. National media coverage has focused on Stephen Benson because he is accused of killing him. We'll have complete coverage throughout the day and up-to-date reports as the situation warrants. How would you describe all the pre-trial publicity that this case has gotten? Pervasive. What do you mean? <laughs> we feel extremely comfortable about the uh, the quality of our case and the evidence. There was a good deal of information and evidence that he was heavily involved in drugs and perhaps the drug trade. This type of execution of people is consistent in Florida with uh, those who run afoul of their business associates in the drug trade. Ken, uh, the highlights of today were opening arguments and the beginning of testimony. The trial has begun. This morning, Vincent appeared to be crying in the courtroom at the end of opening arguments. I could lose this man. My friend. Paradise After Dark. Duck, 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 duck. I'm Lauren. I'm Ken, the official president of the Podcast Studio Owners Association. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> Nobody's going to get that unless they're our actual Facebook friend in real life. Oh, they'll get it. Okay. I am president. Inside joke, folks. I'm sorry you don't get it. Inside the studio. Okay, so we're back with part two of the Benson murders. Where did we leave off last week? Uh, we left off. We can give them a little quick recap. Let's start with maybe a recap. Okay. Pretty much on the morning of July 9th, as we, anyone, well, put it this way. If you've not listened to part one. Go listen to it. You should probably hit stop right now. Go back and listen to part one and then come back and listen to part two. I'm just saying, you never know. Yeah, that's true. I found myself listening to podcasts. I'm like, I don't know any. Oh, you know what? I accidentally hit part two. So if you did that, go back and listen to part one. This will make much more sense. But pretty much on the morning of July 9th, 1985, Margaret Scott, Carol, and Stephen Benson were getting ready to go scout out property for Margaret to build a dream home. I guess they had discussed this, and they were going to go and check, check it all out, out the property. Because apparently the house that she had, which was massive, was not big enough for herself. So, but before they left, Stephen, if you'll remember, he offered to go pick up coffee and donuts and danishes from the little shop and go around the corner. And he was gone for just pretty much a little over an hour. 70 minutes he was gone. When he returned home, he suggested where his mother and siblings sit in their Chevy Suburban as they were getting ready to leave. Now, normally, Stephen would drive when the family would go somewhere altogether. But for some reason, this morning, he wanted his younger brother, Scott, to drive, his mother to ride up front, and then he and his sister, Carolyn, were going to sit in the back. This was definitely a bit of an oddity. So between 9.17 and 9.20 a.m. and sometime after Benson suddenly left the Suburban with the excuse that he had to run back inside and pick up a tape measure, the vehicle exploded. The car reportedly exploded in two separate blasts spaced about a half a minute apart, hurling debris some 200 yards yeah, they claimed that they had to go pick uh, pieces of the Suburban out of screen cages and yards almost three blocks away. That doesn't I'm surprise sorry. me. Sorry, not three blocks, three houses away. I apologize. Well, And we'll get into this later during the trial. One of the deputies testified that there was human body parts across the street. So it was a massive explosion. Margaret... Benson and Scott Benson, that's Stephen Benson's mother and younger brother, were blown out of the vehicle and killed instantly. Carolyn, who had her door open when the first explosion went off, was blown from the vehicle, but she did survive. Stephen Benson was obviously inside the house, and the family's attorney, Wayne Kerr, was also Inside the house at the time of the blast, and he wasn't hurt. Yeah, neither one of those two were hurt, obviously, when the bomb exploded. So... Bombs exploded. I believe that's where we left off last week, right when the bombs exploded. And we talked about how Margaret Benson was starting to get suspicious that her son Stephen was stealing money from her. And she had called her the family attorney, Wayne Kerr down from their hometown in Pennsylvania to start looking at the books to see where her money was going and what Stephen was spending her money on. So according to an article in the Washington Times, the lead investigator with the Collier County Sheriff's Office, Harold Young, was one of the first people to answer the call about the bombing. He's quoted as saying, I know it was no accident. The Chevrolet Suburban was blown all to bits and pieces, and the bodies lying on each side. He found Stephen Benson inside his mother's house talking on the phone. He was calm as a cucumber, he said. He was talking to one of his associates. The phrase, how much did we take in yesterday, sticks out in my head. That seemed more important to him than his family lying all over the golf course. Wow. That's just not something you think about. Money would be the last thing on my mind. Benson told Young that he and his family were going to look at a piece of property where his mother wanted to build a home that morning. Benson said he first got, went to get coffee and donuts at a nearby store. He returned and got everyone into the suburban and went back into the house to retrieve a tape measure. That's when the bombs went off. 
Harold Young said, I knew he did it immediately. Young had several reasons to suspect Benson. He was the last person to drive the SUV. He parked it and positioned his family in it. Nobody else had time to put the bomb in there, Young said. He was my main suspect before I got out of the house with him. Now, a team of 20 investigators from the sheriff's office and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms discovered some 40 fragments of two suspected pipe bombs in and around the Suburban. Now, investigators, including the ATF explosive experts called in from Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, were attempting to determine how and where the bombs were placed in the wagon. So we have two pipe bombs explode in a Chevy Suburban. Margaret Benson and Scott Benson are killed instantly. Carolyn Benson is blown from the vehicle. She's badly burned, but she's not killed. We have the lead investigator who shows up to the crime scene and immediately suspects Stephen Benson. That's where we are right now. Yeah, and I, and I believe after this, the uh, family was flown back to Lancaster, Pennsylvania for the funeral. They were Yes. Uh, Margaret Benson and Scott Benson were buried in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where the family was from. Now, Stephen Benson attended his mother and brother's funeral in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And while he was there at the funeral, he actually asked his grandfather, Harry Hitchcock, for a $20,000 loan. And Hitchcock did give him the money. So he borrows $20,000 from his grandfather at his mother's funeral. Yes. Now, if this doesn't reek of suspicion and guilt, I don't know what does. I don't know. I mean, if you, honestly, if you are, just it would seem to me like the, the investigator said the last thing that you would think about was money. You know, as the one investigator said that he heard, overheard him talking about how much did we take in. And here you are at your mother and brother's funeral and you're borrowing money. Like, I don't know. I'm just... You're more concerned about money than you are about burying your mother and your brother. It would seem to me that certain things would take precedent. I wouldn't care who I owed money to, who owed me money, how much money I had. None of these factors would come into play at any given time if this had transpired in my life. Well, that's what you would think, but we're talking about Stephen Benson here. So, Stephen Benson was eventually arrested on August 22nd of 1985 for the murder of his mother and brother. And when they went to arrest him, they found that there was still blood splattered on the side of his white work van. Yes. That had been parked in the driveway that morning. Now, we're talking six weeks later, and they go to arrest him, and they see that there is still his mother. I believe it was his mother's blood. I am assuming they know that because of where the van was positioned when the bomb went off. Like they say, you've been driving around like that for weeks. Six weeks. And one of the detectives was quoted as saying, well, one had made a statement that he had radioed one of the other detectives who was keeping an eye on Ben Stephen because they thought that, you know, he was a suspect and being investigated. And they said, hey, he's taking mom for a ride again today. He said, what do you mean? And he began to explain to him that I'm sitting here watching him and he has not even washed this vehicle. So, when Stephen Benson was arrested, his grandfather, the same one who had just lent him $20,000 at the funeral, asked the judge that Stephen be given no bond, stating that anyone capable of killing their mother and brother for money is capable of doing the same for their grandfather, Well, if you to remember, their grandfather. If you remember, we talked about the in the beginning, the grandfather was very religious, and money really didn't mean that much to him. Not like not like the Vincent family itself. Didn't really mean that much to him. So he, he kind of feels like it corrupts his family. You know, I, I, would, I would perceive that as, you know, look what it's doing to your family. Well, at some point, I believe after the trial, he is quoted as saying, and I can't, re- and I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know the quote, but he said something along the lines of, I tried to teach my family that money is the root of all evil, and I guess I didn't do a very good job. Yeah, that's This a- is Harry Hitchcock. This is Margaret Benson's father. He is the one who started the Lancaster Leaf Tobacco Company, and that this is the company that made this family their millions of dollars. 
he was the one who started it all, but he didn't give a hoot about money. So now his his grandfather has his grandfather's gone to the judge and requested that he does not get bond. Right. Okay. Because he was afraid that if he if Stephen Benson was capable of killing his mother and brother for money, which is what this is all going to come down to, and and we're going to get to that. But if he's capable of killing his mother and brother, then he's capable of killing his grandfather for the same reason. Oh, absolutely. Now, once Benson was in custody, investigators questioned him until he invoked his right to have an attorney. Young, Harold Young, said they talked about Mother's Day and how sad it would be not to have his mother around on that day. We were trying to get some emotion out of him, Harold said. There was none. He just ignored it. Yeah, they, they pretty much claimed that once he was arrested, he pretty much shut down. Attorney, he shut down and never said another word. Now, one of the things that I do know is, the, and this is something I don't understand, maybe you can explain it to me, is they tell you your Miranda rights, right? You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to represent you. Correct. But the judge in this case actually allowed Benson to receive $244,000 of his mother's money for defense. Same exact thing. So he had to pull the money out and give... Out of his mother's estate? Exactly. So his mother's estate. Now, he's on trial for killing his mother for money, but yet the judge released $244,000 of his mother's money so he could hire a defense. So in turn, he had to pull out an additional $244,000 of his mother's estate and give it to Carol. Because, Carolyn, because that's obviously, couldn't just give it to Stephen, not her. So now here's Carolyn, who's not, you know, she's basically disfigured. Her mother's dead. Her brother slash son is dead. Her other brother's on trial for murder. And the money that Stephen was going after that she should receive is being dipped into by the judge to defend him for killing his mother and causing all this grief. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I don't. I, I I have a little bit of a problem with with that aspect of it. Well, I don't understand why they would do that if you can't afford to hire an attorney. Ones that will be appointed to represent you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, there's two things that they do when somebody can't afford an attorney. Well, here's three things I want to say. First two, if you can't afford an attorney, they will either give you a public defender or they will appoint you an attorney that's not a public defender, just a criminal defense attorney, but the court will pay that attorney, the attorney fees. A lot of times... A lot of times they have funds set aside for that reason, or a lot of times the attorney will end up having to take less money if they're a court-appointed attorney. And I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. In a situation such as this, where it's a murder trial and possibly the death penalties on the table, not just any criminal defense attorney can represent a client that's facing the death penalty. They have to be a death penalty qualified attorney. Therefore, I I, I didn't know that 
But I remember learning that in the uh, Casey Anthony trial. Yes. Because... So, if they do not have a public defender that is a death penalty qualified attorney, which most of them aren't, they will get an attorney, a criminal defense attorney in town, and they the court will appoint that attorney, and the court will pay that attorney. Well, in this situation, in a case this big... If there is funds that aren't taxpayer dollars that can pay the attorney, why not have those funds pay instead of the taxpayers? Well, I get that, but I, the part that disgusts me is you, you're killing your mother for money. You do this heinous crime, and now the judge is going to say, okay, well, so we know you killed your mom for money. You haven't been convicted yet. But to defend yourself, we're going to give you some of her money to do that. Well, like you just said, he had not been convicted. True. Innocent until proven guilty. True. The Constitution of the United States of America states that you have a right to a fair trial and a adequate defense. He's still a dick. Of course he's a dick, but... I, this I, this I is it. our system that we that that we go by. <laughs> well, I understand that, but I just it really just disgusts me looking in it and and our system is disgusted. We could we could do an entire episode on how disgusting our justice system is, and I could go on for know, literally it's hours. Still, it's still in a lot of aspects very reputable. But, but let's get back to the trial, or get back to the case. I apologize. But I just, that one little aspect, I mean, we're talking a quarter million dollars. I mean, some people won't make that in, some people won't make that in, in, in six, seven years. You're just going to hand it over to this guy because he needs to pay an attorney. Well, would you rather pay for Stephen Benson's defense with your tax dollars? Did you know that after this is all done, Stephen Benson is broke, which means the entire quarter million dollars goes right to his attorney? Well, his attorney deserves it. Okay, we'll see. I mean, okay, we'll see. Moving on, let's talk about the bombs. Let's do that, the bombs. The bombs, the two pipe bombs that were placed in the vehicle. They're described as each one was a foot long and four inches in diameter. They were filled with a smokeless powder and also nails and tacks were inside the bombs to intensify the impact. Now, they believe that they were set off by some kind of remote control device. And the reason they believe that is because several years earlier in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, before the family even moved to Naples, a roofer that was working on the roof of the family house had witnessed Stephen Benson walking out into the yard with some small copper pipes in his hand and what looked like some sort of remote control that had two buttons on it. Now, he went wherever he was walking towards the tennis courts on the property. The roofer lost sight of him, but then there were like three explosions. And then he saw Stephen Benson again laughing. Like it was something funny. Yes. So... Apparent, so they knew that Stephen Benson had, at some point in years past, created, built pipe bombs with a remote control detonator. So let's talk about the evidence against Stephen Benson. Well, there was there was about a hundred and sixty some pieces of evidence actually admitted into the case. But the major, the major things that really sealed his fate. We're not going to talk about all 160, so? No. Okay, good. We don't have that kind of time. Well, on July 5th of that year, they say a man matching Stephen's description bought a 12 by, bought two 12 by 4 inch galvanized steel pipes and four 4 inch end caps from a local construction supply firm. We do know that that is. Can, can we say the name of the company? Hughes. Hughes Supply. Hughes Supply. Yeah, which is still in business. Great company. Don't damn them for anything, but they're, they're, well, they're actually a really great company. A very close person to me knows. Now, okay, so this needs to be explained. Hughes Supply Company is a supply company for plumbing and construction, but mostly plumbing. 
they are only allowed to sell to licensed contractors. But sometimes they just want to make money. So people will come in, especially people with money, will come in and be like, I need this. You know, I'm not a licensed contractor, but I'll need this. And they'll sell it to them just because they want to make the sale and make the money. That was not allowed. And the man, I I actually don't even know the name, but I do know somebody who knew the man who sold Stephen Benson these pipes and end caps. And I guess just a, just a little tidbit that this person who sold them beat himself up for years and years and years to come because he knew he wasn't supposed to sell those supplies to Stephen Benson, and he did it anyway, and those were the supplies that were used to murder two people. Well, and again, keep in, keep in mind, we're not talking about This is hearsay, well, exactly. by the way. It is, well, which won't hold up in court. Um, but keep in mind that this is... You know, this is the late 80s. We're talking a population of maybe 20, 25,000 people. Nothing huge. So we're not talking about modern day where we're, you know, phenomenal amount of people, a ridiculous amount of people um, compared to 1980, you know, late 1980s. So what you're saying makes sense, but it's, it, you know, it's guy comes in, you know, you know his name. He's got a lot of money. He just want to sell him a piece of pipe because maybe he's just trying to fix a drain. Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. But and, and the odds of how many people go to buy pipes from Hughes Supply that are going to blow people up, pretty rare. Yeah, I think that's the only instance around here. But later, the investigators will find a receipt with Benson's palm print for the purchase of these particular pieces of pipe and the end caps that were used for the bomb. And investigators also found on Benson's pants a single particle of zinc which they say fell off the pipe while he was making the bombs. Which I, yeah, yeah. Pieces, little little chunks and slivers. That can happen, especially when you're dealing metal. Yeah. yeah. So there was a little particle of zinc they found on his pants. So now his trial is going to start 12 months and five days after the bomb blast. So... CNN and People Magazine came to town. Are you kidding me? Everyone came to town. Yes. This was described in one article I read as the O.J. Simpson trial before the O.J. Simpson trial. But This trial was huge. For yes. some reason, it was national news. It was on TV every night. I don't know if Nancy Grace was around at that point. I bet she would have been all over it. She would have been all over this. And I would have changed the channel. Jerry Berry, one of Benson's attorneys in particular, recalled a writer from Playboy wanting to do a major piece if Benson was acquitted. He wanted cooperation from Mike McDonald, the lead attorney, and Jerry Berry. And, of course, they said they weren't very interested in that. I guess not. Does anyone recognize that name? Is anybody... Okay, we're going to get to that in a second. Watch what it said. So the attorneys recalled distractions from all the media covering the trial and the heavy daily coverage in the Naples Daily News. The trial was moved to Fort Myers after Mike McDonald, the lead attorney, asked for a change of venue due to publicity. Now, like we just said, Stephen Benson was represented by Mike McDonald and Jerry Berry. On the prosecution side were brothers Jerry and Dwight Brock, and Collier County Circuit Judge Hugh Hayes was presiding. Now, all five of these characters would remain in high-profile jobs in Collier County for years to come. Judge Hugh Hayes is still, to this day, a current circuit court judge in Collier County. He served two terms as Chief Judge of the 20th Judicial Circuit from 2003 to 2007, and he served as the Administrative Judge for Collier County on multiple occasions. And he's very, very, very reputable. I think yes. he yields pretty fair. Judge Hayes is a, is a very upstanding... For the millennials, he's the shiznit. Now, Mike McDonald and Jerry Berry remained very high profile and sought after defense attorneys in Naples. Mike McDonald passed away in February of 2016, 
And Dwight Brock was elected as Collier County's Clerk of Court in 1992, where he remained until his death this year. Just this year. Actually, June, about two and a half months ago, he passed away from lung disease. As Ken was saying, if the name Mike McDonald rings a bell with any of our listeners. Ding, 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 ding. Insert bell sound here. In 1975, McDonald defended Richard Mitchell, who was charged with murdering Ruth Waples. Of Naples? Well, you sure her real name was Ruth? And secondary prosecutor on that case was Jerry Brock, who is also the, he's the main prosecutor in this case, in the Benson case, but he was secondary prosecutor in the trial of Richard Mitchell, accused of murdering Ruth Waples. Now, that was episode 13, Paradise After Dark, Mrs. Waples of Naples. If you haven't listened, you should. Mike McDonald also defended Lenny Martis in 1997. Lenny Martis was our main character in episode 2 and 3, Crash and Murder, part 1 and part 2. One of my favorite episodes. So, These guys are- this is our third episode Featuring Mike McDonald. <laughs> well, he's, you know, and of course he's a reputable attorney, as you look. I mean, he... Was. Was. I apologize. He was. passed away. That's right, 2016. Yes. But when you if, when you hired Mike McDonald, you got the best of the best. I mean, that's what and you got. And I was actually very fortunate enough to know Mike McDonald. I worked for... I did not work for him, but I worked for a criminal defense attorney that worked very closely with him on a couple different cases. And, you know, he was just a great person. I know criminal defense attorneys get a bad name. They're sleazy, scuzzy. They defend the worst of the worst. But he was, like, always smiling, always happy, just, like, an all-around super nice guy. And he was very, very good at his job. Oh, yes, absolutely. As it, you know, and it shows, too. Now, one of the things in this trial that they said was because you had this big, high-profile attorney and his team, um, Mike McDonald, who was the the slick attorney, very... Charismatic. Exactly. Very he, theatrical in the courtroom. He had the... the, the, the the money, the 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 look, the look, the slick back hair, attitude, uh, everything. Drove a, drove a brand new Jaguar, the beautiful Y, all this stuff. He had everything going for him, and of course, then it's you got Jerry and Dwight Brock, who were sort of more southern, laid back, um, and actually, they did have that southern accent too. They did. <laughs> I, I and here we go again with my personal. I'm going to put my personal tidbits in here. For a little less than a year, I actually worked in the criminal department of the clerk of court's office and worked for Dwight Brock. And he was just, what do you call, like, like a good old boy, good old southern boy, you know? Didn't mean it, no. But he didn't take any shit from anyone. I mean, he he was a good, he was good at his job. All these men are good at their job. Now, these massive amount of reporters and everybody that showed up, they all kind of get together. And this is sort of this big trial, as Lauren described. And the reporters actually wrote and talked about this case being the Miami Vice meets the Beverly Hillbillies. Really? Yes. Reporters called it Miami Vice Who meets Beverly Who was Miami Vice and who were the Beverly Hillbillies? Dwight and Jerry were the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> And, and Miami Vice was McDonald and his team because they were the slick back, you know, city slickers. I can smart. see that, though. And I can what, see that, So though. that's that was one of the things that I, they sort of called it that. I find it interesting, though, just the fact that Jerry Brock and Dwight Brock, like a brother team, hooked up to, to prosecute this case. Well, Dwight Brock was the money... He was the money man. He and his team combed through the financial records. All right, moving along. I'm going to get to that in a second. Moving along, folks. There's nothing to say here. Okay, so neither Benson's wife nor his three children attended any of the month-long trial. Prosecutors spelled out the state's evidence, 
starting with Margaret Benson asking her attorney to start reviewing the books to determine if her son was stealing money from her. Two days before the explosion, she asked Benson for his company books. On the day she was killed, prosecutors said, Mrs. Benson had ordered her son to produce the records of a company she had helped him finance. The family lawyer, Wayne Kerr, had been summoned from Pennsylvania, the family's former home, to inspect the records. Mr. Kerr testified that Mrs. Benson suspected her son was draining money from the company when she learned that he had bought a $215,000 home with a, with a swimming pool and tennis court. And again, remember, he had claimed that he sold his car for the down payment. Yes. So Dwight Brock, who handled the financial end of the case, said he recalls spending weeks with the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms accountant trying to put financial records together to establish Benson's motives. He was spending his mom's money and she had caught him, Dwight Brock said. The courtroom was silent as burn victim Carolyn Benson took the stand. Her testimony about the morning of the explosion was carried on live television. Carolyn Benson testified that she saw her brother in front of the house watching her burn without coming to her rescue. Next thing that I remember is seeing my brother Stephen standing on on the wall. Do you recall what he was doing? He was just staring straight ahead. Okay, and what did you do after you became aware of his presence on the uh, wall? Couldn't understand why he wasn't coming over to help me. I couldn't understand why he wasn't coming over to help me, she testified. Yeah, when you listen to that in the trailer, boy, it really grabs you, doesn't it? Yes. Prosecutors said the killings were clear-cut acts of greed, while the defense strategy was to bleed the trial of sympathy for the victims. Now Mike McDonald and Jerry Berry built their defense with witnesses from Merrill, the golfer, who testified he'd heard Benson yell for help to a lineup of jail inmates who said Scott Benson was into drugs. The defense claimed drug dealers set the bombs in the family's van because Scott Benson owed them money, or that the killings could have been the work of young Scott's enemies made during a fast-track life of girl chasing and drug buying. Yeah, they tried to, they tried to portray him as sort of the bad guy that someone was after out to get him. And I guess that, yeah, which makes sense because when you're a defense attorney, you, you've got to create reasonable, reasonable doubt. doubt. And sometimes in a lot of cases, not necessarily this one in particular, maybe some little, but they do some of it's reasonable doubt, but it's like irreasonable doubt. They're trying to, they just get far fetched. Well, but you, as a defense attorney, you have to do what you got to do. The tape recording and testimony by Mrs. Benson's secretary, Joyce Quinn, were an attempt by the defense attorneys to portray Scott as the target of the bombing by an unknown person because of his alleged drug use. Now, the tape recording we played in part one, I can probably go ahead and insert it now. Just because it's your house doesn't mean you do what you want with my dog. Can you understand that? Miss Quinn also testified she heard Scott in his room earlier that day inhaling deeply, and police found two apparently empty nitrous oxide canisters in his room. A psychiatrist in Naples who treated Scott Benson for drug dependency in 1983 told the court that the young man had a craving addiction for nitrous oxide or laughing gas. He inhaled nitrous oxide like you might drink Pepsi said psychiatrist Dr. Jose Lombillo. In this particular instance, Scott's psychiatrist had been arrested previously, like the year before previously, had been arrested and accused of sexual harassment, which didn't play so well for the defense. Yeah, why would they put him... Why would they put him on the stand? Well, just so you know, one of the ladies that they use, the, I can't think of her name. They'll probably find it. But the jury, they hired this jury selection expert. And this woman had been arrested three years prior 
for putting a hit on her boyfriend. So this is the defense coming in, and the prosecutor's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who are you hiring? Okay. <laughs> so Mike McDonald, referring to Mrs. Benson as Scott Benson's mother, and we, we all know from part one that Margaret Benson was actually Scott Benson's grandmother. But if you don't know that, then you obviously haven't listened to part one, so you stop, go listen to part one. So Mike McDonald told the jury, in a family that had no reason to do harm to one another, we had one poor, unfortunate man who was running amok, threatening to kill his mother, dragging his mother across the floor, beating his sister and biological mother with his fists and consuming such quantities of narcotics as to create the probability of behavior consistent with that kind of violence. Who would do anything to get more drugs? Contrasting this behavior with that of Stephen Benson's, Mike McDonald said, I told you he was a loving son, and he was, who took over when his father died, who never said a cross word to anyone, who was the peacemaker, who only got angry when Scott abused his mother. So they're basically running Scott Benson's name through the mud, saying that he was a drug addict and a drug dealer, and he owed drug dealers money, and he beat up on his mother, and he huffed nitrous oxide, putting all the dirty secrets out in the air. Mm-hmm. Patty Bennett, a juror for the trial, recalled for an article with Lancaster Online when the trial started, At this time, I was not convinced he could really murder his mother and his adopted brother and sister. But that changed over the next three weeks as witness after witness took the stand. Bennett heard Carolyn, who was disfigured in the bombing, testify that after the first blast blew her out of the car, she was still conscious and she yelled for her brother to help her. He stared at her and walked away. Bennett heard about the money battles that were going on within the family and how Margaret Benson used money to control her children. Now that I'll have to agree with. How they fought among themselves and with her to gain access to the fortune. How Margaret Benson asked the secretary to inform and spy on Stephen. How the bombs were assembled with nails and tacks put inside them so they would do the most damage. The matricide was a huge point, she said. How do we fathom in our heads that this boy plotted and schemed? He told them where to sit so he could do the most damage to the ones he hated the most. Now, the jurors were shown pictures of Margaret and Scott's mingled bodies. The jurors mostly kept their composure as they looked at the photos, but a few of them reacted. You know, I can can understand that. One woman refused to even look at the photos. Can't blame them. But Jerry Brock contended that the photographs were necessary for the jury to fully comprehend the severity of the crime that was committed. The medical examiner testified that Margaret and Scott Benson died of multiple overwhelming injuries due to the explosion, probably because the you know they were packed bombs, so yeah. they had more injured in, they had more injuries than just an explosion. Margaret had extensive injuries to the left side of her body. Scott had injuries mostly to his right side, including a piece of wood driven into his chest. Probably like wood crane or something to that effect, maybe from the console or something? Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I read that. Now, Michael Gideon, a Collier County Sheriff's Office investigator, described the grisly scene he saw when he arrived at the bomb scene. He said what appeared to be flesh and blood was splattered on the side of Stephen Benson's white work van, and there were human body parts blown across the street. Theodore Toth, a metallurgist. What's a metallurgist? Metallurgist, someone who deals with metal. He understands metals, all the different types, gold, tin, steel, stainless steel. He knows all about metals. Okay, so he examined the remnants of the pipe bombs and said the fragments were similar to those bought from the Naples Plumbing Supply Company, but couldn't conclude that the pieces of the pipe he examined were the same ones that prosecutors alleged Benson bought. Sheriff's Lieutenant Wayne Graham testified that Benson at one point 
managed to laugh at something that was said after the explosion. Graham said he and another lawman were going through the house looking for bombs when Benson's wife Deborah came out of the bathroom and asked who they were. When her husband replied that they were looking for bombs, she said, Here I am sitting on the pot and I could have blown up, Graham recalled. He said Stephen Benson and others around him laughed. We've shared many laughs over the years, but this isn't a laughing matter, is it? Mike McDonald asked Graham. No, sir, Graham said. McDonald asked Graham if he had ever studied what makes people laugh. No, sir, Graham replied. Graham said that at another point, someone brought a lawn chair outside so that Stephen Benson could sit in the front of the house while his dead mother and adopted brother lay on the ground nearby. During cross-examination, the prosecution called on Theodore Toth again in an attempt to link the two-foot-long, four-inch-wide pipes bought the day before the explosion with what investigators said were bomb fragments found at the scene. The invoice for the pipes bought July 8, 1985, has Stephen Benson's palm print on it, another expert had testified. Toth said the fragments were of the same composition as the pipes on the invoice, galvanized steel. He said he determined the fragments came from at least two, possibly more, foot-long pipes that were either four or five inches wide. Toth said that in measuring one fragment, he determined that a four-inch wide end cap was found at the scene. Under questioning from Mike McDonald, Toth said the pipe manufacturing standards he used to reach his conclusions are not used by all domestic and foreign manufacturers. If the standards he used are wrong, then his conclusion on pipe dimensions would be wrong, he said. Basically, he could not conclude that the pieces of pipe given to him came from the pipe bomb, or the pipes that were purchased by Stephen Benson and from the supply company. Okay. Well, that's what, and that's what the attorneys, that's what he's designed to do, was to create, you know, to make sure everyone's creating, aware of that. Yes. Yeah, creating reasonable doubt. So, the, basically, the three-week trial laid bare the private troubles and disintegration of the entire family. Now, we learned, what, what, have, what have we learned about the Benson family? We, first, we learned that Scott Benson was not actually Margaret Benson's son. He was her grandson. Yes. Whom she adopted because her daughter, Carolyn was a pregnant teenager and gave birth to Scott out of wedlock. And that was an embarrassment to the family, so she adopted him and raised him as her own. Well, that's, that's what you do. You, you That's how a family stays together. We also learned that Scott Benson was a drug addict, not only cocaine, but apparently nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide, weed, cocaine... All, all that. Plus, 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 I'm sure. A little bit of a partier, but he was young still. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you do when you're, you know, a not professional tennis player. I don't know. I never huffed nitrous oxide. Neither have I. Or, not not or, even the dentist. Or uh, snorted cocaine or, or did any of that. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That's not just what you do. No. <laughs> Sorry. I'm calling you out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the case has sort of produced a, a portrait of the of an indulgent, widowed mother who freely wrote checks for her grown children, lavished sports cars and other expensive gifts on them, and time and time again was disappointed with their failures and an indolent lifestyle. In return for her generosity, she got deceit, abuse, and ultimately death. And ultimately death. Yeah. So the jury convicted Benson on the first vote. The defendant is guilty as charged for first degree premeditated murder. Done, Dick. The jury was split on the death penalty, so they gave him life in prison. The judge made the sentence consecutive in according with Benson's sister's wishes. And Harry Hitchcock, who was Stephen Benson's grandfather, Margaret Benson's father, was the only family member to make a statement after the verdict, and all he said was, justice has been done. Now, one thing that I do know is when Harry Hitchcock arrived, he never one time looked at Stephen Benson the entire time this trial was going on. And 
I don't think you mentioned it, but when Carol, when Carol was on the stand and she was um, giving her statements as a witness and, and all of her thoughts and everything, she actually turned her chair and was looking directly at the jury and never one time made eye contact with Stephen as well. So here you've got the sister who never made eye contact the entire time that she was in there. And all Stephen did was stare at her. All the video clips, the things I've seen, he just stares at her just with this lost, lost stare. And of course, Harry Hitchcock never looked at Stephen either. So, Stephen Benson went to prison. Peace out. Let's talk about him hanging out in the prison system. He was moved around the Florida prison system quite a bit. He spent time at Cross City Correctional Institute, Martin Correctional Institute, Avon Park Correctional Institute, and Santa Rosa Correctional Institute. A lengthy Department of Corrections files tells about Stephen's time behind bars. You didn't mention his first one, the toughest one ever. What's that? The toughest prison in Florida, Rayford. He was at Rayford? Yeah, for a day. Oh, for a day. Yeah. And it got, doesn't count. He got punched in the throat and cut, and they moved him. <laughs> well, he was stabbed by another prisoner in 1991 and transferred to another prison for his own safety. Another time, he was found to have a knife in his possession and punished. He was written up for fashioning a battery pack outside his transistor radio. Imagine that. He's pretty good with electronics, huh? He was selling legal services to other inmates using the prison computer to keep track of his customers. Wait, legal services? Like, <laughs> Apparently so. Like services that are legal? I think maybe he was... I don't know. I don't know what that means. Ah, maybe he was, like, representing them. He made off with ketchup and mayonnaise packets from the mealtime... And once he had an unauthorized Scrabble game confiscated. Bastard, how dare you play Scrabble? He was transferred at least 22 times while serving his sentence behind bars. Well, that'll mess with your mind a little bit. He worked jobs from being a houseman to working in the laundry and on painting detail. Well, and if you're going to kill your mom and your brother, I'm sure he got worked over a few other times. He was an avid writer of grievances against inmates, against corrections officers, and against anyone who wronged him. Often his grievances were written off by officials, and he's told to read the regulations or law closer. Well, just so people are aware, when this trial was over, he was broke. I mean, flat broke. And according to what I read and found, he didn't have enough money to even buy a transcript for the case so he could file an appeal. So all that money that he received from the quarter million dollars that he got from the judge to represent himself, gone, broke. So he complained about inmates having to wear shirts in the television room. It was hot, he said. He was concerned that a television room was used for Spanish programs several hours each day when the Spanish-speaking inmates just joined the other inmates to watch television anyway. He argued the amount of sales tax charged at the commissary and had his account credited by 95 cents. <laughs> he also protested in 2004 when a book, Hacking Exposed, Network Security Secrets and Solutions, was taken from him. He said the title was misleading and that no one would listen to him, that the book was about preventing hacking and not how to carry it out. He spent several stints in segregation after some of his exploits. He told prison officials that he was trying to live a well-adjusted, low-profile life behind bars. Now, during his time in prison, Stephen Benson denied all requests for media interviews. Yeah, again, he, he never said anything. He there just... is no record of him having any single visitor during his 29 years in prison. And Janet Murphy, Stephen Benson's maternal aunt, said no one in the family ever patched things up with him, and he never admitted to the crime. 
Yeah, he never he never talked. He never said anything to anybody going beyond. No. Once he got arrested. Radio silence. That's it. For the rest of his life, as far as the crime was concerned. So let's fast forward. July 3rd, 2015. Six days prior to the 30-year anniversary of the murders. Stephen Benson died of a stab wound to the head from a homemade knife in prison. A.K.A. Shank. He was 63 years old, the same age as his mother when he blew her up. But the circumstances surrounding his death remained a mystery for a little while, and they wouldn't even classify his death as a homicide or suicide. Florida law enforcement officials provided very few details about Benson's death. The records did not indicate when Benson sustained the wound to his right temple, but they show he had been transferred out of the Taylor Correctional Institute in Taylor County, Florida, to Leon County, where there are at least four medical facilities. The medical examiner's report obtained by Lancaster Online states the cause of Benson's death was delayed complication of sharp forced head trauma. Now, we have the medical examiner's report in front of us. I found it online. You can get anything online these days. The report is is kind of gross. Now, it says, first pathological diagnosis, sharp force head trauma, puncture wound to right temple made by a sharpened instrument. In parentheses, it says shank. Perforation of the skin and soft tissues of the right temple, right temporal bone, dura mater, and penetration into the right temporal lobe with extensive hemorrhage into the brain tissue, cerebral ventricles, and formation of a large subdural hematoma resulting in a significant right-to-left shift. Marked cerebral edema and herniation. I can't, I don't even know what any of this means. It means he got stabbed in the head and he bled out. Puncture wound of the posterior left parietal scalp with penetration into the calvarium. Calvarium, I looked at, I looked that word up. It means skull. Moving along, uh, they found multiple healing contusions of torso and upper lower extremities. Blood toxicity was negative, so he had no drugs. Cause of death, delayed complication of sharp force head trauma. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. They also found a bunch of other wounds on him in the report. Well, he's in prison. I'm sure he I'm sure he probably had to fight a little bit. So the right temple demonstrated a previously sutured puncture wound. The puncture wound track travels from right to left, back to front, and down. Scattered over the upper right and left chest are large geographic healing red, green, and yellow contusions. Similar contusions are noted on the anterior medial aspect of both bronchi. Both forearms and the dorsal right hand feature healing geographic red and yellow healing contusions. Geographic Ovoid red contusions are noted on the medial mid-right thigh, scattered over the right shin, distal anterior lateral left thigh, and dorsal red foot are red healing contusions. Okay, not 100% sure what that means, but I'm thinking maybe he was also beat up because it says blunt force injuries. <laughs> I'm sorry. Listeners, I'm not a medical professional. Put some legal mumbo-jumbo in front of me and I can talk about it all day long. This is like you might as well be speaking to me in Greek. Well, I think Harold Young, he was the lead sheriff detective who identified Benson as the primary suspect back in the early days in the killing in 1985. He, he told Naples Daily News... Uh, in a quote, and I think he said it best when he said, how long does it take to say a guy was stabbed in the temple? True. 
It so. did. T- it did take them a while to actually come out with the cause of death. Took you a while to tell it too. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so and beyond. I'm trying to give our listeners like the most information possible. Uh, I have this autopsy report in front of me, which we never get our hands on an autopsy report. I find that really interesting, but he was stabbed in the temple. He was stabbed in the temple. And That's how he died. And a bunch of other medical mumbo-jumbo. Now, Young actually, he, Young actually did say that. He, he, did, he is quoted as saying, how long does it take, take them to say a guy was stabbed in the temple? But uh, beyond that, after that, after Benson's death, he pretty much had little to say, except I really don't know how to comment on it. Justice is justice. It wasn't until March of 2017 that Lancaster Online obtained reports that he was allegedly targeted for revenge by a 28-year-old inmate named Cordell Washington. Mm -hmm. The two men reportedly held a deep animosity toward each other, dating back to 2012 when they were serving time in the same prison. According to inmates who spoke to investigators, the grudge between Benson and his alleged killer stemmed from Washington's 2012 assault of a man who was said to be Benson's then-boyfriend. Benson Waples? Oh, my bad. The next day, Washington was beaten in an apparent act of retaliation ordered by Benson, according to statements given to inmates first published by the Naples Daily News. So, he was murdered as a revenge for ordering the beating of somebody who beat up his boyfriend. Oh, my God. This case is just, ugh. You know, my thoughts on the whole thing, I don't know if we're ready for thoughts here. Yeah, let's talk about some thoughts. Um, Basically, he was just a spoiled, rotten kid who was sort of covered by his mother, mother's shadow all the time. I mean, he was... Literally under his mom's thumb. And I think, honestly, I, I don't know if this was more of a... If he just kind of went crazy and nuts and killed his mother. And was tired of Scott coming in and sort of not being the son. Being the grandson and sort of taking all the fame and glory and everything away from him. Because he was... You know, Stephen was mama's boy. And Carol was mama's girl. And then Scott comes along and all of a sudden takes all that away. So now... Scott's sort of the apple of her eye, and he's getting all the attention, everything he wants, and she doesn't really complain, and she takes all this shit from Scott and doesn't do anything about it. And then Stephen, he is constantly, you know, if you don't do this, I'll take away your money. You don't do this. So I kind of feel, I'm, I'm not trying to justify what he did by no means, but he was just a spoiled kid who lived under his mom's thumb, and, you know, she controlled him with the money. And I think I he, think they were all just fucked up. Yeah, I think he snapped. And I think the, I don't know what, what, what went wrong where, but it seems to me that once, um, Ed Benson, Margaret's husband and the father passed, I think that probably put a lot of, hit the fan. yeah, I think that put a lot of stress on the family. So my thoughts is, you know, I'm not justifying by all means. I don't, I don't like Steve. I think though everything about this case just is, is terrible. I feel really bad for Carol, because she was, you know, beautiful model. Well, Carol went on to be an attorney over on the east coast of Florida. I think it was West Palm Beach. She went on, and she was actually disbarred just last year. For taking money and... For taking money from her clients and not doing any work. So... We should do that. Neither of us are attorneys. Oh. Can we just take money from people and not do anything? Mm, if people are stupid enough to give us money. If anyone wants to pay me to do nothing, I'm game. Me too. I will give you 100% of not my time. Did you have any final thought? I mean, what are your thoughts on it? How do you feel about this whole scenario? Oh, I just said, I think the whole family was fucked up and the whole situation was fucked up. And money is the root of all evil. Truly. That's what I believe. Sometimes money is not the end of your problems. It's just the beginning. Yes, I agree. I agree 100%. So, Stephen Benson got old and died in prison with little fanfare. It's been decades since 
this crime and this trial. But for some reason, it still fascinates people. And even TV specials still pop up on cable channels from time to time. Dominic Dunn's investigative crime show, Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice, devoted an hour to the case for Stephen Benson. Stephen Benson was also featured in an episode of The New Detectives entitled Short Fuse. That's season two, episode three. There's been three books written about this case. The first one is called Blood Relations by John Grigna. Second one, Money to Burn, a true story of the Benson family murders by Michael Mewshaw and The Serpent's Tooth by Christopher P. Anderson. So if anybody wants to do any further reading, there's three books for you written yeah. about this case. I thought maybe like Stephen Benson got involved and was helping some of them on the books, but then it occurred to me that he never said anything about anything. So he, till, until his dying day, never admitted guilt directly to anyone. No, he never did. Now, those involved with the case say they're surprised at how it still resonates in people's mind and in their own lives. Maybe it was the money, the power, the greed. Who knows? I don't know. It's interesting nonetheless. So the motto is, if you're rich, there's a potential someone wants you dead. True. And if it's not the husband? Maybe it's the son. Shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's a good thing we have daughters. True story right there. Um, one little, a lot of people sometimes get fascinated with money. Me, I care less. But just a little tidbit. Three years after the trial, Harry Hitchcock, who was worth $400 million, he died. So had Stephen just laid back, kept it calm and stayed cool, he could have potentially been part of a $400 million inheritance. But instead, he got greedy. Now, the problem with that was Harry Hitchcock thought that maybe, as we spoke about earlier, had this had sort of tainted and spoiled his children and that money had ruined him. He didn't want the same thing to occur to the rest of the family because given money. So he gave them just a little bit of money each and, or a little bit of money, spread it out between them, and then donated the rest to charities, local municipalities, libraries, churches, a lot of different charities in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So, and that's where the, the dynasty, wow. sort of, Carol inherited the bulk, obviously, of the mom's fortune, and Stephen got zero. Of course. All right. That's it. That's the end. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed this episode, part two. I uh, appreciate everybody for listening. Thank you. Thanks Thank for your you patience. Thank you for listening. We were going to actually uh, have this broadcast, in, or we were going to actually have this released sooner, but we had big lightning storms and have lost internet. Yeah, we lost internet for a couple of days. That was annoying, to Not say fun. the least. Not fun. Not fun. Our dogs really need Wi-Fi. It's no joke. That's it. That's it. It is We're done. Zero, zero 002 a.m. right now. That's 12.02 a.m. Yeah, for you land-bearing people. I'm going to bed. I am too. Thanks for listening. To Paradise After Dark. Dark, dark, dark.